What's up, Hiroshi? Let's light this candle. Welcome to the Blackcast, a very special Blackcast, which you probably already sense what's special about it. I will be joined by some very special guests, our friend Deborah Saunders of the San Francisco Chronicle, and then going to talk about a variety of topics with our pal KNBC-TV legal analyst Royal Oaks. We're going to talk about the Supreme Court. We're going to talk about OJ... TV OJ and real life OJ and talk a little baseball. Joining me now is San Francisco Chronicle columnist Deborah Saunders, whose blog appears at sfgate.com. And you can follow her on Twitter just like I do at Deborah J. Saunders. Deborah, Shalom Aloha. How are you? Shalom Aloha Calamara. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, look, I really appreciate you taking some time to uh, chat with me today. I haven't talked to you in ages. Um, this is not your first appearance on the Blackcast, though. When we were all sort of in mourning during the, uh, the 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 sad funeral, you know, we were sitting shiva basically for the Dennis Miller show. At that point, uh, you were kind enough to come on then. You were always very nice to come on whenever I guest hosted, especially when you know it would be an early morning email like, "Yeah, Dennis is sick. Uh, what are you doing in an hour?" And uh, you were always great and always made time, and I appreciate it. But uh, I am a pioneer in the Blackcast. That's true. You are, um, and uh, you know, probably I would have to say the most, the best credentialed person because you you actually work for an actual establishment. You're not some crazy website no one's ever heard of. You work for the San Francisco Chronicle, and I Find feel the official embarrassment of the San Francisco Chronicle. <laughs> well, somebody has to be though, right? I mean, it's <laughs> you, you. Well, your the the blog, I believe, is is it still called Token Conservative? Because it is. that is exactly the role that you fill there. Because you know they feel like they have to have one. I suppose I I don't know quite, quite know who that's for. You know, in in the Bay Area, uh, and we'll talk a little bit about the Bay Area in a moment. But uh, Deborah, we haven't spoken in so long. I need to know what has it been like for you to cover this very particular election cycle, which it's only April now, but I feel like it's been going on for about three years. It's really painful to cover this because I am not a Donald Trump fan. And to watch him prosper and watch him to say things that should have ruined someone else's candidacy for president, uh, somehow make it everything, everything made him stronger. Uh, That's been frustrating. Uh, however, we're now seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. There has been a belief you know, among Republicans, a lot of them will say, he can win, he can win in November. And we're seeing poll after poll after poll that shows that's absolutely not true. And if he is the nominee, there are a number of Republicans who will walk away from the party, at least in 2016 and perhaps forever. Yeah, no, I, I think I, I can see how the forever would happen. But uh, obviously in the short term, uh, you know, I mean, there have been – Pieces saying like you know conservatives that are that are just saying you know I'm not going to vote that way, but I I'm starting to think Hillary might even be better for the country than Donald. People that you would never expect to say something like that, and uh, yeah, it's 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 I don't know. The only word for it is crazy. There's a part of me that wishes that I were still doing a five day a week, three hour political talk show where I was in the thick of all this craziness. But the majority of me is so relieved that, you know, the somewhat interested outsider who can decide to turn it off and just play with my baby for a while and, and, you know, not have to follow it so closely, not have to watch every single one of those debates and, you know, all all that sort of stuff. So uh, I 
I can only imagine what it's like for you, not only being the token conservative at the San Francisco Chronicle, but having yourself lumped together with, well, if you're the conservative, you must be a Trump person. And, of course, immediately that means you must be a racist. Well, let me, let me just say um, that what's really frustrating is this is the year when Republicans had it all. With Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders, the top two Democrats, Hillary likely to be on the ballot, Hillary Clinton with her huge negatives, she is so vulnerable. Whichever of these two is a nominee, the Republicans should just, it should be a, a breezy walk to the White House for them. And instead, with this series of, uh, you know, Trumpisms and, 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 and Trump sort of sucking all the oxygen and chasing out the serious guys, for the most part, Instead, it looks like we're probably going to lose in November. And that just drives me crazy, because I really feel that the Republican Party, and I remember writing this six months ago, that when you look at what's going on with the Democrats, Hillary Clinton with her credibility issues on emails, on on everything, right? And you look at Bernie Sanders, who... Uh, wants to more than double the the minimum wage nationally and you can... and he's literally running on I'm going to raise your taxes you know <laughs> that's really what he's running on he's like don't worry america i'm going to raise your taxes and that sh- you know that's another thing you know it's not the same as trump but that's another thing that should have you kind of laughed out of being a serious contender for president it it it, 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 it the, the, they are so vulnerable and yet somehow uh a a rump in the party is the tail wagging the dog, and they've found the worst possible candidate to face either of these guys in November. And and it's just frustrating to see it. Yeah, and I mean, it, it got so crazy that all of a sudden, you know, Marco Rubio was the establishment candidate because people saw him as a as as a you know an op uh, the opposite of trump basically and it was just like well you know that's not really what you know jeb bush sure that's what you think of as an establishment candidate but it just got so anybody who wasn't trump if you liked them it was the establishment and now it's like well ted cruz is kind of the the only choice which i think when it all started and the the musical chairs for the gop party you probably didn't figure it was going to be donald trump and ted cruz is really the only one serious still alive. I understand that Kasich is the only one who hasn't also suspended his campaign. But I mean, that's that's such a long road ahead where, I mean, all he can do is try and get close. I mean, he doesn't. Ha- I'm sure that the math doesn't add up for him. So it's just not where I think any of us expected it to be at the point where, what are we, three months away from the convention? I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> I'm sure you don't. <laughs> Um, well, let's uh, sort of make it a little bit more local uh, about a piece you wrote on March 25th. Would the Donald govern like Arnold? Because uh, and I was I was reading that I was thinking there's first of co- first of all there's of course the obvious comparison between the two. Trump hosted and created Celebrity Apprentice, and now Arnold is going to take over. So they're basically both game show hosts. But uh, what were some of the things that you saw that made you wonder, you know, what inspired you to write this piece, basically wondering about whether or not the Donald will govern like the Terminator? Well, and they are both known by their first names. <laughs> That's Donald a good point. Arnold, yeah. And, and um, they, they both have their, their trademark uh, sentences, you're fired, and I'll be back. And- <laughs> That's very you know, true. They both love superlatives. 
They're both guys with money and no political experience, but tons of celebrity, which helped them uh, win elections. So there's a lot. And, and, of course, if you're a Californian who who, who covered the Schwarzenegger governorship, uh, you can't help but see the similarities. And so I thought I'd do a, you know, a column about, well, if Donald Trump is similar to Schwarzenegger, what can you expect from him? And, and the thing is that, Schwarzenegger's appeal, just everything hinged on his celebrity and his popularity. So the minute his popularity started to, to wane, uh, he was just in complete trouble, and he had to lurch to the left to, to save his reputation and, and, and to get reelected as governor. And I think that you would probably see the same with Trump. I mean, but let, me, let, me, and let me talk about two big differences between them. Schwarzenegger has been a Republican from the beginning. He saw uh, Richard Nixon giving a speech, and he said, what party is that guy with? Uh, he makes a lot of sense to me. He's been a Republican ever since. Uh, he's a conservative uh, in a lot of ways. On economic issues, Arnold Schwarzenegger is on the right. Donald Trump, he's everywhere. You know, he's been yeah. a Democrat. He's been Reform Party. Um, and, and he's been a Republican, and then he's left the party. He, he believes in a lot of things that Republicans don't believe in. So that's one difference. And the other thing is, so you'd expect these guys are so alike that Arnold, especially since he's going to take over for Trump, hosting Celebrity Apprentice, right. he would endorse Donald Trump. But no, he endorsed John Kasich from Ohio. And that tells you something. Yeah, no, that that definitely tells you something. And I, I mean, you know, look, we're, we're America. We love a great uh, conspiracy theory. But uh, it's hard to 100% rule out the idea that the whole Trump candidacy is a conspiracy to help uh, help Hillary get elected, you know, because he's just like, oh, watch, I can I can crash and burn more spectacularly, more phenomenally better and bigger than anyone you've ever seen. Just watch me. I know. And if if the, if the Clintons had sat down and figured out how can we make sure Hillary wins in November? This would be the way to go. This would definitely, yeah. This is this would be the the step by step, you know, paint by numbers. This is exactly what you need to do, you know. As you're getting closer to locking things up, go ahead and say that women who have abortion should be punished. Mm -hmm. That is exactly what you need to do. And I, I don't know. I mean, it's there was a point in the summer where I thought it was funny. It was kind of entertaining, you know. I, it's so far beyond that now, though, because it's. Uh, you know, it's very scary because it wouldn't take that much for this guy to be president at this point. You know, I mean, he can he can even not get enough delegates and still, you know, run as a third party, which was interesting to think back to a simpler time when people were asking Trump, you know, if you're not the Republican nominee, will you still vote for the nominee? Uh, because the idea was, well, of course, he's not going to be. They w didn't want him to run for a third party. Mm -hmm. But now... It's like everybody else. Well, if Trump is the nominee, are you going to vote for the nominee? And they're like, oh, no, of course not. God, why don't we have superdelegates like the Democrats, you know? <laughs> but I think that uh, things are happening so fast. And his, his drop, it, polls are showing Trump to be in so much trouble. Uh, New York Times had a piece where they're, they're talking about how he could be the zombie candidate. Wow. He's sort of, he's, you can't stop him. He's dead, but you can't stop him, and he's going to move forward. But I, you know, I mean, I watched The Walking Dead. It's pretty easy to kill a zombie, right? <laughs> yeah, all you need is a sharp rock, basically. Right. You can stop him. Yeah. So, um, you know, we'll see what happens, but I think that it is quite likely that, uh, that Republicans are going to do what they can do to, um, that Republicans are going to do what they have to do to, 
stop him. Yeah, no, no, I definitely agree that that's that's where we seem to be heading at this point, and you know, it's basically all hands on deck. Everybody's just like, well, what can we do to not have this guy basically embarrass us? You know, for the the rest of the campaign, and then also in November, you know, when. You know, Hillary or Bernie Sanders could, you know, become president with like seventy percent of the vote or something crazy. But uh, and and who knew Ted Cruz would be my my new best friend? <laughs> yeah, you actually had a piece that you wrote. I saw that on your website. Uh, I think it was March second. My new best friend Ted Cruz. Talk about how all of a sudden you're like, oh, Ted Cruz, it is. <laughs> yeah, he's looking better every week. <laughs> he sure is. <laughs> So what was it, uh, you know, is it basically just is sort of my, to overextend my musical chairs uh, allegory from before, is basically like he's the only other guy that still has a chair. So you're like, yeah, it has to be Ted Cruz. You know, you you don't want to embarrass yourself by saying like, Kasich, Kasich, he's our man, you know. Well, you know, it's, it's this is, here's something that's going to be fun for us was Californians, right? Yeah. California really could be pivotal in determining who the Republican nominee is, which is which never ever 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 happened. In, in your lifetime has that ever happened? I mean, uh well, since I've been a Californian yeah, in that... 1985, no it is. Yeah, not. I didn't think so. <laughs> um, but so and here's what's really interesting. California is not a winner take all state in the primary. And so what's going to happen is uh the, the way the way you win delegates is you win all three delegates for every congressional district that you win. Now, there are some – that means that uh, San Francisco – if you win in San Francisco, let's say you're John Kasich, who I think might win there, you get as many delegates as if you win in a congressional district in Orange County. Oh, wow. I so did not realize it, that. It, this is going to be something where, where the guys who really know how to crunch numbers and know where all the votes are are going to be key. So you're, you'll find that it's possible that Kasich does really well in California for that reason. Uh, as I think, you know, Democratic congressional district has as much weight as a Republican one. Um, and, of course, Ted Cruz has uh, really been smart about how he's done his ground game in other states. And Ted Cruz has been working hard to, to make sure that he knows how to play the delegates. His, uh, one, of his new, one of his spokespeople is Ron Nearing, who used to be the chairman of the Republican Party in California. So I think you're going to see him making a lot of inroads. And uh, Donald Trump seems to have just figured out that, hey, there are rules in all these states. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> you actually have to follow the rules to figure out how many uh, delegates you're going to get in the state. So uh, he, he's, I'm sure, going to be peddling furiously to win California, win as much as he can of California. Yeah, which which is interesting. And I mean, on the on the Democratic side, it, it's, you know, California is basically important because, you know, which of your super liberal friends are going to be, you know, more active and out there campaigning for Bernie or Hillary? And, you know, my wife's my wife's job that she had uh, until a few weeks ago before she started a new one, uh, everybody left early in the afternoon uh, so that they could go and see... Uh, Bernie Sanders speak at the Wiltern, which is which is where it's a it's a theater where bands play like, you know, well-known, well known well It's not it's not like going to Staples Center, but you know, it's a few thousand seats. So it's like, OK, well, we're going to leave work so that uh, all the all the writers could go and and see Bernie speak. And it, it's one of those things where it's just like, you know, it, people are they can't believe that uh, that you're not feeling the burn. Uh, my wife was just happy to beat traffic and come home and see me and Felix. But at, at the same time, it's like, you know, by California, usually, you know, the California primary is in June. Usually 
everything's locked up by then. But, I mean, I know that there's all the superdelegates, but... Uh, th- I, I think Hillary wins California. I think she does, too, but in a, in a way where it's it's more work than I think anybody thought it was going to be. You know, where I mean, the whole nomination is more work than anybody thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. But uh, I don't know. I mean, it's look, it, it's all it's all interesting and uh, probably uh, headache inducing for you. Um, you know, speaking of Bernie, you referenced how he's going to be doubling the minimum wage. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that, because here in California, uh, our our pal, <laughs> Governor Jerry Brown, is uh, going to increase the state's minimum wage to $15 per hour by 2022. Mm-hmm. So what, it'll be $5, uh, sorry, $5 more from 10 to 15. Uh, so gradually is basically what it is. You know, we'll go up to 10 and then 15 by 2022. Um, it's a 50% raise over yeah, six years. Right, exactly. And, you know, I look, it's great for people who can suddenly start making more money, but it's one of those conversations that I kind of never want to have with anybody because there's so many numbers involved and all of a sudden I'm like, oh, this person understands economics more than I do. I just know I feel like it's bad. But give us your thoughts about what this means to so abruptly, like you said, double the minimum wage here in California. Um, well, you know, Jerry Brown said at, uh, when he was at a press conference discussing this measure that he admits that this means there will be more automated jobs, that employers will look to automate jobs at fast food places and you know, all, for all sorts of other endeavors because the, that, the more you raise the minimum wage, the more incentive there is for companies to do that. Now, I mean, I can understand having a cost of living increase to the minimum wage. Absolutely, and, sure. And California's $10 minimum wage, it, it's higher than uh, $7.25 for the national minimum wage. And um, at any rate, so, I mean, obviously there are, there are reasonable things that you can do. But if you increase it too much you're basically going to keep employers from deciding that they want to hire someone. $30,000 a year for an entry-level job, plus you have to pay uh, Social Security and uh, you you have to pay uh, workers' compensation. If you provide health benefits, add that too. It means that every job is that much more expensive for a small business. And it will... So while there's an argument, and there's a conservative argument for raising the minimum wage a certain amount, uh, that way you have more people making work pay more is a good thing. Um, Higher pay means fewer people on welfare. So there is a conservative argument for it. But you want to find the right the right amount, the right number, so that you're not killing too many jobs. You know, you'll kill some. The question is how many. And the higher you increase that minimum wage, the more jobs you will kill. I, I feel a little sorry for Jerry Brown in this. He didn't want to do this, but uh, unions pushed and they got a measure on the ballot to do this. And at least if if Sacramento passes the bill, which the legislature has already done, and he signs it. Uh, he'll have some of the, the the governor will have the ability to say, you know what, we can't raise the minimum wage another dollar this year uh, because the economy is not good. So there's some control and there's some way to put the brakes on if it's hurting people. You have a, if it's an initiative, there's nothing you can do. It's it's the law, and if a lot of people find that they can't get jobs because of because of it, there's you have to wait till the next time you can get a ballot measure before voters to change it. Yeah. And I mean, you know, uh, as Californians, we know that you can get a lot of these ballot measures, you know, on there. There's always so many, but it takes a while. So, you know, any any changes to this process are going to be difficult to make. And I don't know, I think it's one of those things that, you know, look, if if you make, 
you know, nationally seven twenty five or you know, locally around ten dollars an hour, and somebody's like, "Well, you're going to start making more money." You're probably like, "Well, this is great. Of course, I'm in favor of that." Mm-hmm. But then finding out, it's like, "Well, you know, now you're going to become a." you know, a part-time employee and we'll hire another part-time employee so that we can cut back on some of the things we have to pay. And, you know, this was most vocal about a year and a half ago from the fast food industry. And I don't know how much you eat fast food. I, I eat more than I should a uh, few times a month. And a lot of them do have the touch screens now to kind of bypass, you know, you still need people to make them. You'll always need people to make them, but you don't have to be as involved. And it's, uh, I don't know. It's, it's sort of like just showing you like, look, we don't need this many people. You know, it's like, we're, we're kind of spending, look, all these companies are going to make a ton of money. I get that. But just because they make so much money doesn't mean that it has to be, you know, redistributed, redistributing the wealth, which is apparently very, very popular with the the millennials, because that's how you explain how the coolest guy they know is a seventy three year old Jew from Vermont. Those are that's my quote, not yours. Don't worry, Deborah. I won't, I won't drag it down. That. I didn't say that. You didn't say any of it. But uh, you know, you know, old man Bernie Sanders is the coolest guy. You know, so uh, you know, and, and I just think a lot of millennials aren't really thinking about the consequences of this. I understand it. As I said, I'm not opposed to having reasonable increases in the minimum wage. Yeah, of course, yeah. but but. Um, you just ought to be careful for what you wish for because sometimes you get it and then you find out that the unintended consequences hurt hurt really you know low they're going to hurt low skilled workers those are the people who are going to take it kids kids looking for their first jobs they're the ones who are going to be hurt as time goes on with this yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, we're, we're talking to San Francisco Chronicle columnist Deborah Saunders for a few more minutes. Her token conservative blog appears at sfgate.com. You can follow her on Twitter at Deborah J. Saunders. Uh, I wanted to take a few minutes to talk about a really interesting piece that you wrote on uh, April 2nd, the libertarian take on the streets of San Francisco. And it starts with a great quote, well, great in the sense of, you know, narrative of reading it. Uh, someone from the uh, Castro Merchants Association, his name is Daniel Bergerac, I suppose. Uh, Sometimes I think we're so liberal that we're okay stepping over dead people on our sidewalks. And that's how it opens. So Mm -hmm. talk a little bit about this piece, which I found to be really interesting when I read it this morning. So I've had this reader who keeps asking me if I'll take this walk with him down Market Street. And he tells me about all the things that he sees. And I've seen it, too. You know, people openly dealing drugs. I find out I don't hear as well as I thought. <laughs> people were yelling weed, weed to me. <laughs> but, you, you know, you can walk down Market Street, which is San Francisco's main street. Sure, uh, yeah. the, the walk to City Hall is truly one of the grungiest. And you will see people uh, openly peddling drugs. Um, I saw a guy in a lunchtime crowd, beautiful sunny day, all these food trucks around uh, near UN Plaza shooting up. You see this wow. kind of thing all the time. It smells of piss. It just does. I've seen uh, homeless people defecate on Market Street in the middle of the day. It's disgusting. And so you, you but so what do you do? I mean, I'm, I tend to be libertarian leaning. I don't think the answer is to pass more programs that aren't going to work and laws that they can't really enforce anyway. So. So what do you do? So I decided, okay, I'll, I'll call up the Independent Institute in Oakland, their libertarian-leaning group, and ask them what they think. What, what are some of the things that you can do? Um, and, you know, support private charities is one thing, because uh, private charities can ask more of people. They can, you know, you, they, they can have standards. Uh, it's not just, here, 
we're going to come to our shelter. We're going to try to get you on SSI and hope that you don't break any laws in the meantime. Yeah. We put you in temporary housing. Um, and, you know, we talked about some of the things, uh, some other things that can be done. I mean, San Francisco is a city where they've, out, they've banned plastic, those little plastic bags. Uh, merchants can't give them away anymore. Yes. I'm, in fact, I know we spoke about that uh, a little bit over a year ago. Yeah. And yet the city gives people needles. <laughs> you don't even have to exchange them in San Francisco. Wow. I, I, I did. I went to a, need, I went to, I went to a what they call a needle access program, right? Yeah. And they gave me a bag of 20 clean needles. You so just you walk it, up and here's clean needles. Yeah. Wow. I, got, I got kicked out of the first place I went to because I was a journalist. Right. But then they sort of, finally they just said, okay, well, and you know, um, at any rate, and you see used syringes all over the place. The other day I'm walking to get to my car after work. There's a needle right right by the where my car is parked. Um, so and you really ought to have standards where if you think a behavior is bad, you don't subsidize it. Yeah. And at least, or at the very least, you make people give dirty needles in exchange for clean ones. I think you can at least agree on that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, look, I, I you know, anybody who's visited or lives in a large metropolitan area, you know, knows that there's pockets of stuff like this. But for our listeners who aren't that familiar with San Francisco, talk a little bit about where this is that you're seeing these things in relation to other things. Because I know where you work because I stayed at a hotel not far from there once and you and I met up, you know, for lunch or whatever. And, you know, that's really close to uh, the... I don't remember the name of that mall, but it's a it's a very big. Is that Union Square right the there San, around the corner? You're thinking of the San Francisco Center, which is at Fifth and Market, yeah. and it's one of the. And right across the street is is the is Powell Street. Turn around to take the cable cars. Yeah, there's a Bart station there. I mean, as I said, Market Street is San Francisco's main street. So we're talking about downtown. Uh, I work at Fifth and Mission, which is one block from Fifth and Market. Uh, Sixth and Mission is probably one of the worst intersections, if not the worst, in San Francisco. You, in fact, that's one of the first uh, uh, needle access program that I visited is there. Uh, you'll see all sorts of – it's just a sad place. I mean, you just see people passed out all over the place. It's just not unusual to see that in San Francisco, right downtown. Um, and uh, the, the, the the piss problem – was yeah. so bad last year, and uh, I started this campaign about uh, why San Franciscans shouldn't put up with this kind of. <laughs> well, you can think of a word yeah. that goes there. You know, I, and you know, I went to New York last year, uh, and I, I, I said, let's see. Now everybody asks why is why can New York be clean and San Francisco not? I walked all over the place. The strongest time I smelled piss was when I was near the horses. The carriages <laughs> right at by Central Park, sure. <laughs> right. Yeah. But, but in San Francisco, you smell urine everywhere. Uh, I called the mayor's office. I called a bunch of people, and, and I got a number of reasons why. One reason was the drought. The rain wasn't washing things away. Mm. Another reason is development. That there was some, There's just so much construction going on in San Francisco for, for office space and for housing, you know, condos and, and whatever, that people who could hide out in a in an abandoned lot, now we're being chased, you know, chased out, and they're going toward Market Street. So uh, San Francisco is just—it's grimy, and and uh, but all—and and I, I have to say, 
San Francisco City Hall, the public works people are doing more to really do what they can. There are public toilets in different places. Um, and you see the cleanup crews out there more than before. Um, but when people decide it's okay and they don't complain, this is what happens. Yeah. And I guess that's sort of the point of the, the piece that you wrote. I mean, is this just what happens when, you know, you're so liberal that you're okay stepping over dead people on the sidewalks? I mean, you're just like, no, 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 it's it's all right. We'll just do all these things to kind of, you know, look, I mean, Rudy Giuliani was uh, very heavily criticized for his approach when he took over as mayor of New York, but you were just there and, you know, and it's been, you know, rolled back a little bit under de Blasio, but still it made such a huge difference. You know, I mean, when I was in high school, you didn't go into New York city, really. Now people bring families there. They spend the whole day, you know, it's, it's completely different. And I'm not saying that you can't do that in San Francisco, but it's like, you know, there's a there's a perception where, you know, the the tourist family goes down the wrong block. I don't even mean something terrible happens. I just mean they see something that they wish they hadn't seen. They smell something they wish they hadn't seen. And, you know, then all of a sudden it's like they tell everybody back where they're from. They go, to, you can't go to you can't go to San Francisco. There's people like, you know, pooping on the sidewalk, you know, and I don't know. I don't know what the fix is. I mean, the piece that you wrote is great. And as as I said, it was from April the 2nd and it's called a libertarian take on the streets of San Francisco. So uh, everybody should uh, take a look for that. Uh, with our friend Deborah Saunders. So in closing on this issue, what do you think? I mean, is there a desire to actually make it better, or does that sort of interfere with the more liberal approach towards problems like the homeless and drug addiction? It's just like, well, we, we can't do anything to really fix these problems in our city. Is, is that really the stance people have on this? Well, you know, Christian, every few months a tech person will write something on social media saying, I can't believe what a pit the city is, the homelessness. It's, it's just... It's disgusting, certain places. And everybody beats up on that tech person. How dare you say that? You need, how dare you say that unless you have your own plan? What right. are you doing to make San Francisco better? And I have to say, the first thing you do to make San Francisco better is say it's absolutely unacceptable for people to urinate on the street. And by the way, it's not just homeless people who are doing it. I've seen tech guys peeing on the, on the Chronicle wall. Because wow. once one person does it, it smells like a toilet anyway. Yeah. What's the difference, Why not? right? Yeah. And, and so the first thing you have to do is 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 say we we're not going to take this. We don't we don't let people like say racist things and then get elected to office in San Francisco. Right. So why do we decide that we're going to let people turn the other way when we're seeing incredibly self destructive behavior? Just make you feel not safe walking down Market Street. And, and you should feel safe walking down a city's main boulevard. That's sort of a, that's a good start. And it should be, I mean, that just shouldn't be debatable. No, not at all. Yeah, absolutely. It, it should be common sense. It doesn't matter who you vote for, you know, how, what charities you give your money to. None of that should matter. It should be, it should be a clean as safe as possible, you know, anywhere you go, there's going to be issues, but, you know, it should be clean and relatively safe. And that's, you know, below that can be all your other concerns. But I think that that should probably be first. 
But like you're saying, it it, it just isn't. And uh, I don't know. You know, you're talking about the tech people who write the pieces of you know criticizing it. How dare you do it without a plan? It's not their job to have a plan. The That's people right. who should have the plan aren't writing these pieces. You know, like hey, I'm going to take credit. Uh, sorry, I'm going to take the blame for this, and I'm going to try and figure out what to do. Of course, you're not going to do that because you got to get reelected. Because you know how great are those jobs? It, and, you know? and the whole thing is so the, the San Francisco take has been that we can't judge people. Right. I mean, we can judge somebody who actually wants to get a plastic bag for their groceries. Yeah. But, but if you decide that, it, that if you're a junkie with a couple of pit bulls who panhandles by day and sleeps in a tent by night, we can't judge you. No. And 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 you know, I'm I'm sorry, but we can. I'm not allowed to camp out on the sidewalk. Nobody should be. Yeah. You're not allowed to put a tent up there. And and there should be the same standards for everybody and that's again, that's the beginning of dealing with this with this problem. Yeah, it's like you can't even address the problem as a whole until you deal with the little things. And to to end on a, a note of levity, are those replacement needles any more biodegradable than the plastic bags that they outlawed? I don't think they are. <laughs> so oh, there's no levity in that, Christian. But you are so right. <laughs> I, I, they, and, and I, I mean, of course, if you step on them, you can. And I've heard from a, a reader. His wife was walking uh, through a part, a part of downtown, and sure enough, she stepped on a needle, and she's had to oh, go through no. this series of drugs to make sure that she doesn't get not only HIV but hepatitis C, which sure. is a, a real risk. And so this is the kind of thing that happens when you decide that you can't draw a line anywhere because you have to understand that if somebody is um, a user, that not only can they not be expected to get clean needles themselves, but they can't even be expected to return dirty ones to get clean ones. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, Deborah, I uh, as I said, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to talk to me here on the Blackcast. You know, it doesn't quite have the reach of the Dennis Miller show, but... Uh, it will. Yeah, exactly. We're going to build it together. But uh, a lot of our, our old friends from the Dennis Miller show uh, listen and uh, call in and stuff, so uh, they'll be very glad to hear from you. And if they want to keep tabs on you, they should uh, go to your token conservative blog at sfgate.com, follow you on Twitter at Deborah jay saunders and you know just keep an eye out for you and uh, make sure that uh, that they know where you're at uh deborah thank you so much i really appreciate it later gator later gator all right we'll talk to you soon and now we move the conversation over to another friend of the old dennis miller show and a friend here of the black cast our pal uh knbc tv legal analyst royal oaks royal welcome back to the black cast nice to talk to you christian how are you uh, I'm doing great. I appreciate you taking some time to chat with us here. Uh, we have uh, two topics to talk about, uh, one of them much less serious, but uh, I wanted to start off talking about the the more serious slash important with a capital I story, the uh, vacancy on the Supreme Court. Now, we just recently saw a problem where the Supreme Court was deadlocked on a case that got what, kicked back down. So there are some issues with uh, not filling the vacancy, but uh, from the legal standpoint just talk about it in general and uh, what you think it means and what you think is you know if somebody asked you like hey what should we do what your advice would be royal yeah it's such an intriguing issue because both sides really are, are legitimately accused of hypocrisy i mean the republicans clearly don't want to be able to fill this vacancy and so their excuse for saying we're not even going to meet with the guy much less hold hearings and vote 
is, oh, it's an election year. Let the people be heard in November. Whoever they pick as president, that person should be able to select the next justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. The answer to that, of course, is, well, but the Constitution says the president gets to pick and the Senate gives advice and consent. So it's really the job of the president to select somebody. It's the job of the Senate to vet that person. If they don't like them, fine, but give them an up or down vote. The problem is, you know, when you look at Joe Biden's words in the past and other prominent Democrats, they have argued against election year appointments when the Republicans were in the White House. And so now it's the Republicans' turn to say we don't want the Democrats' choice. So you can argue that both ways. So then inevitably you move from sort of the constitutional issue, you slide into the the political question. And the Republicans, I think, are going to stand firm and say, no, we're not going to vote on this guy for one reason. Yeah, it would be better to get the judge that President Obama has nominated because he's 63 and he's not that liberal. He's left of center, but he's not super liberal. That would be better than, say, a Hillary choice who might be 45 and really liberal and be around for 40 years. But the reason the Republicans are going to stand firm, I think, is they're saying this guy may be kind of a centrist, but he's definitely left of center. So basically, we're going to lose on all the big 5-4 votes with this pick for the next 10, 15 years. So why don't we just roll the dice, hope that Trump or Cruz or somebody from the Republican side gets in there, and then we'll get a better choice in 2017. Right. And of course, you know, with all the conspiracy theories out there, you know, that uh, Trump is actually a double agent for the Democratic Party. Well, you know, know. he might also uh, nominate someone more liberal, but, you know, that's that's more, you know, fantasy kind of stuff. But under different circumstances, under normal circumstances, do you feel like Merrick Garland is sort of more the center of the road kind of nominee that is likely to be confirmed to the Supreme Court? Yeah, Judge Garland is a terrific judge, uh, really, uh, both sides of the fence have have been very high on him. A lot of Republicans have supported him uh, in the past. He's pretty hard on gun rights. The NRA is not going to like him. But on the other hand, on law enforcement issues in general, he's pretty down the middle. Uh, in other words, he's not an ideologue. He is not the kind of person that a, a really strong progressive, uh, you know, a Bernie Sanders type would select. He's a real insider, been, you know, in those Washington power circles for decades, super smart guy. So, uh, without this weird political climate, uh, I think he would be considered a very good pick. I mean, you know, the idea is the Republican or Democrat president, whoever is in power, is entitled to pick somebody who's pretty much ideologically in tune with them. This whole thing started with the, the Bork process decades ago, uh, where the, the Democrats were, were able to get rid of him because he just seemed a little too extreme. And since right. then, it's been all about the litmus test and, and abortion rights, gun rights. Uh, but the bottom line is that in normal times, I think uh, he would have been a really good pick the Republicans wouldn't have been too unhappy about. Yeah, I mean, it sort of seems, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, President Obama feeling like they're already not going to confirm him could have, you know, gone the more extreme route. But, you know, you referenced, by the way, you know, what a President Hillary Clinton would do. But 
you know, President Bernie Sanders could very well, you know, nom- I don't. What's the uh, the the youngest you can be to be on the Supreme Court? It's a dumb question, but I don't actually know the answer. Yeah, you know, that is a good question. I'm not sure that there is a minimum to be president. You have to be 35, right? And I think for you know being in Congress, you've got 25, something like that. I'm not sure the Constitution says anything about uh, Supreme Court justices. And in right. fact, there's no rule that says you even have to be a lawyer. In the olden days, they would they would pick people that uh, weren't your traditional type uh, selections. So, But the bottom line is, the younger, the better from the president's standpoint. Yeah, sure. Look at Scalia. I mean, he was a young guy, and he was able to put his imprint on the court for decades. Yeah, absolutely. And, and look how old uh, people are getting these days. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you know, I mean, she's yeah, exactly. she's been around, yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, it's interesting. And obviously, it really is a simple thing that comes down party lines. And, you know, when this story first happened, I believe it was it was February that Justice Scalia passed away. And you hear about it and you they say, like, well, we're going to wait until after the election. And I don't know if it's September, October. You kind of understand that. I was like, well, this is February. It's a long time. And, I mean, look, you don't have to have nine justices on the Supreme Court, obviously. But uh, talk a little bit about the case that happened where they were deadlocked 4-4 and then didn't pass a ruling on a, on a kind of important case. Yeah, we've got about a half a dozen really big cases that have worked their way through the pipeline that were before the U.S. Supreme Court. And now we're not going to have a full nine justice court deciding it. And the most dramatic recent example is what you're alluding to. It was this case about union rights. Do unions have the ability to force people who don't really want to join the union uh, to nonetheless have to pay dues because otherwise they'd be getting a free ride as a result of the benefits that the unions negotiate for workers? This worked its way up to the U.S. Supreme Court and the lower court sided with the union. But based on the oral arguments recently, it appeared the U.S. Supreme Court was prepared to reverse that and say, you know what, when you've got a public opinion, a public union, that is, public employee union, it's inherently political. And so the objectors, the public the public employees who don't really like the idea of their money going to that union, uh, have a right to say, we're not going to contribute to it. Well, uh, the the 4-4 decision that just came out in that case without Scalia essentially was a nullity. And when you have a tie at the U.S. Supreme Court, that means whoever won down below is the ultimate winner. And so the unions were the winner. And so now we may see the same thing in terms of religious freedom and the latest Obamacare decision. It's going to be kind of frustrating, kind of like kissing your sister, you know, with the four four ties one after the other. And that's just going to increase the support for the president. I think public opinion polls showed that a clear majority of Americans felt that the Senate should get down to the, the job of doing its job and, and vetting these people. And so the president actually could have gotten even more political. Hey, a lot of people were speculating he might pick a person of color so that if the Republicans refused to even meet them, uh, then the Republicans could be criticized not just for not doing their job, but also for really being guilty of an act of discrimination uh, against a Latina nominee or whatever. So uh, I think the president is scoring some political points here. But but again, I think the Republicans are going to hang tough figure. You know, there's so many issues swirling around in this vortex of, of, of political hate this year. Uh, the, 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 the blow 
pullback because of not acting on the Supreme Court probably isn't going to be a big deal in the minds of most voters. No, I, look, I, I definitely think you agree, although, you know, we've heard a few Republican senators who've kind of broken ranks a little bit. They're like, well, you know, we'd be interested. But at the same time, you're doing that because you know that Mitch McConnell is saying that it's not going to happen. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think that it, it's it. Look, it, it, it's all politics, obviously, but the politics really kind of getting in the way here. And I, I don't know. I, the other thing is, at what point is it even possible? Can President Obama make a recess appointment to the Supreme Court? Or is that is does it have to be confirmed by the Senate? Again, I'm asking very basic questions because I'm a very basic sort of guy. I have the questions that the average people have. And actually, when Justice Scalia died, a lot of people were wondering if the president would do something pretty dramatic, which was appoint a recess appointee, uh, because as it happened, right after he died, the Senate was in recess. And the rule is, if the Senate is in recess, the president does have the power to appoint a, a justice who would have that job basically until January when the next president came along, and then that president would be able to, to remove that job. Oh, okay. So, but he passed on that. He didn't do that. I think the president probably thought about it for a couple of minutes and realized, yeah, that would give me a short-term gain, but it would make me look like I was kind of skirting the rules. I'd rather make the Republicans look like they aren't playing by the rules. And as you mentioned, the political angle, a senator in Illinois, I think his name is Kirk, is running for re-election, and he's in a tough battle this November. He's a Republican. He's the first one who broke ranks. And just two or three days ago, we see in the you know the New York Times front page, he's sitting down meeting with the nominee by the president, and he's blasting his fellow Republicans. So he's clearly worried about the Illinois voters looking at him as a guy who wouldn't even meet with the nominee. He made the decision to break ranks from the McConnells uh, and, and say, you know, it's best for me. Maybe he really sincerely believes that, but politically it's probably good for him in his reelection race in Illinois. Yeah, no, no. And again, you know, it, it makes sense. And you know, having been on the Dennis Miller show for uh, years on WIND in Chicago, we would hear a lot about uh, Mark Kirk and how people really didn't like him. And that, this doesn't surprise me, you know, when, when I heard that he was the one that broke ranks. Anyway, it, it is an interesting story. And I, I don't know, it'll be it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. But I, I feel like you know, we're going to have these four four ties. Uh, you know, and uh, you know, the next president, whomever it will be, will nominate someone, and then we'll see. And who knows? Maybe they nominate Merrick Garland, but we'll see. Maybe maybe a Republican will win the White House, but the Senate will go to the Democrats. In which case, uh, they could try to uh, jam the nominees. So anything yeah. can happen. Yeah, exactly. Um, speaking of anything can happen, uh, I find it you know on a much less. Uh, uh, nationally important issue. I find it fascinating how much people continue and are once again fascinated by the O.J. Simpson trial. And uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you today, and I uh, you know, sent you a message just to make sure, was about The People versus O.J. Simpson, which airs Tuesdays on FX. And for the most part, I do find it very engaging. I think uh, some of the casting is well done. And, you know, for the most part, I think it's well written, but I'm not even a lawyer and I'm not even close to a lawyer. And there are moments where I watch this and I go, well, that wouldn't happen. You can't do that. You know, I'm like, they're not going to make fun of her haircut in court, you know, like, you know, when it's actually in session, you know, and just there, there, there's just so many moments where I'm like, 
this is a little tough to swallow. You know, big dramatic moments that you go, well, I, I don't, I don't remember it happening that way. Um, are you able to separate? possible law inaccuracies from watching a show like this that is, you know, quote-unquote inspired by facts but not an actual, you know, fact-based show? You know, I'm fairly well able to do it, partly because I lived through it, and, and you know, sure. I started out, uh, I'd done some legal analysis before O.J., Rodney King, and so on, but that that was the big one. That really drew everybody in. They, they needed talking heads, and, and I had a head, and I was talking. So, uh, you know, I was on ABC uh, radio news every day, uh, virtually every day for the eight-month trial, they they took it wall to wall. You may remember a lot of stations that they got huge rating boosts because they dumped their format and they just went wall to wall. TV stations, radio stations. So I followed it pretty carefully, and, and and of course with a general familiarity of court procedures, I've seen a few things that I think you know, they got a little wrong, but not too many. For example, Ito really did make sarcastic remarks about Marsha Clark's hair. Uh, uh, most of the things you see in this movie really did happen. Even right. Though it, it, it seems kind of amazing, but it just kind of takes you back. I mean, I was representing the uh, Radio TV News Association, arguing for cameras in the courtroom. So I was in front of Ito you know, three or four times, and O.J. would sit there, and he was always very bored-looking when I was talking. But I was trying to make the pitch that in spite of the fact Ito thought there was a circus atmosphere because of the cameras, m- my clients at TV stations wanted the cameras to continue to roll. He always... Con- did allow them to go. I think in retrospect, there's no way he was going to pull the plug. I think that he felt that he was doing a good job. There's nothing wrong with the world seeing him do a good job. And so, but as you recall, I mean, it was just obsessive. I, mean, I used to host, you know, three-hour talk show blocks uh, in Los Angeles, and you you would turn the, the microphone on, and three hours later, it would have been nothing but wall-to-wall O.J. Right. calls. The entire show, people were utterly obsessed with that case. And I think that's why the FX people they gambled, and it paid off. They put out a, a good movie. People are really into it. I see now the Discovery Channel, a few other networks are putting uh, out OJ-related. Yeah, shows. ESPN is also going to have a different OJ series that they're working on. And I mean, you're right. Look, when I was in college, it was, it was during this trial and we didn't have a lot of cable channels but one of the ones we had was cnn so we had you know like maybe like nine ten channels one of them was cnn so oj was on because it was either that or the same sports center for the 15th time you know so i don't even know how invested i was in it but i watched a lot of this trial and i saw a lot of these things and you know so you're able to see the actors portraying some of these real life people and they're doing a great job you know no, Cuba Gooding Jr. doesn't look like O.J. Simpson. He's much smaller. But I do think that his performance is great. He does not convince me that he's O.J. Simpson. But I I don't know. I buy him as an actor, the choices that he's making. And, you know, I think that uh, Sarah Paulson as Marsha Clark is fantastic. I don't know the actor playing Chris Darden, but he just looks and sounds like him. Uh, Courtney B. Vance as Johnny Cochran, probably the best in the whole cast. He just nails it spot on, you know? He really does. I mean, it, the whole dynamic, it kind of revolves around uh, the the conflict between Johnny Cochran and Marsha Clark. I mean, those, you know, O.J. is the, the, the main character, but in a lot of ways, you know, C- Cuba Gooding Jr., I, I heard he was kind of frustrated because so much of the movie he has to just sit there and look anguished yeah. at the council table without saying anything. But, yeah, I, I think, as you say, other than John Travolta, who's kind of over-the-top and cartoonish about Robert Shapiro, yeah. uh, they're doing a great job. I mean, David Schwimmer, at first I thought, well, you know, he's just got the one expression, you know, this angst. and yeah. But I think he's handling it really well because 
You know, when O.J. was found not guilty, uh, there is a famous photograph of Johnny Cochran kind of hugging his shoulder, a big, broad smile. O.J. has this huge sigh of relief. You could tell he's just sighing with relief, and, and he has this, this broad smile. And next to O.J. is Kardashian, and the most intriguing expression. It's kind of like the Mona Lisa. You know, is it a smile? What's she thinking? You can tell that he, he's not a happy guy, and it conveys the idea that in his heart he knows that his friend of 25 years is a double murderer who just got away with it. And, of course, so, so that makes uh, Schwimmer's character interesting, plus the kind of the little jokes of you know, talking to his little eight-, nine-year-old daughter. Uh, um, yeah, Cam and, and, and all, all the kids, all the kids show up in a few... You yeah, know, little inside jokes like that. Yeah, there, there's definitely some funny things like that that they do a good job. And I've uh, come to terms with David Schwimmer. I think he is good in the role. But as I talked about on the Blackcast, and we even played a little montage, it took me out of it so much the way that every time he talked to OJ or about OJ, he was just like, Juice. Juice. And he's like, that's your Uncle Juice. Your Uncle Juice is a good man. And I'm just like, look, I get it. We all get it. He called him Juice. I don't think it would be constantly what he called him. And then more recent episodes, I don't think he's called him or referred to him as Juice at all. Let's be honest. He's no Jennifer Aniston. No, he's not. You know, which, by the way, if they had chosen Jennifer Aniston to play Robert Kardashian... I would have liked to have seen if she had the uh, the reach, if she could stretch as an actor. Yeah, but uh, you know, I, look, I think it's great, and it's you know, I, I unfortunately, you know, you, you know how it turns out, and so you see the show, and you can only feel terrible for Fred Goldman all over again. The actor who plays Fred Goldman looks like him. You feel his pain, and it's worse knowing that you know his son was senselessly murdered and you know there was the the civil verdict but you know i i can't i can't even begin to fathom what it's like to be fred goldman oh, and i mean and, and as you say i mean the actor is like a doppelganger yeah this guy, they really they nailed it when they found the guy and, and of course the irony is fred goldman is kind of responsible for simpson rotting in prison in nevada now because Fred Goldman, as you say, won the big civil verdict. Not much of a consolation. He lost his son, but you know he wins $33 million shared with the other victims. And so O.J. didn't want Fred to be able to get O.J.'s stuff, the memorabilia, the jerseys, and the footballs, and so on, by way of collecting on the judgment. And so what he did was Simpson gave the stuff to a friend for safekeeping, and that lasted for years, and that stuff wound up in the hands of a third party who tried to sell it, that led to the 2008 conviction of O.J. Simpson in Nevada for robbery when he and some pals with guns went into the hotel room and took the stuff back. So if it wasn't for wanting O.J. wanting to keep stuff away from Fred, he wouldn't have done that stupid thing of yeah. muscling in the hotel, leading to his 33-year conviction. Now, he's up for parole in October 2017. We'll see. I'm betting the parole people in Nevada are going to say, you know, O.J., you deserve another decade or so in prison. Yeah. He's there till 2041 when he'll be about 93. Right, exactly. And like you said, it's not really consolation to Fred Goldman, but the fact is that O.J. is in jail, so there's there has to be, I don't even know if it's satisfaction, but there's some sense of, you know, eventually the right thing did happen. And yeah, that O.J. breaking in and stealing his memorabilia is just like... You know, and I know you in the law business, you have to throw the word allegedly around all the time. So he allegedly murdered two people and got away with it. 
I think that's the point in your life where you just figure, you know what? I I, I was I was given one. I, I I'm taking the mulligan. I'm going to stay out of trouble. Yeah. And uh, he just couldn't. So I don't know. I mean, it's it, it's it's easy to get caught up in the show, which is very entertaining. It, Nathan Lane as F. Lee Bailey is to me is just there for comic relief, but he's great. You know, just sitting there getting drunk, and I'm like, fantastic. Right. You know, and then you, you know, you're reminded of people like Mark Furman and, you know, Barry Sheck, who was barely in it, but then we saw, you know, it was Rob right. Murrow. So th- there's, it's a great cast. It's a well made show. It really is. And I think, uh, you know, Ashley Bailey, uh, that's the way those old time trial lawyers were. I-, I remember I was in San Francisco in 1976, uh, and I, um, dropped in on the Patty Hearst trial. I was a student. I, I wanted to see F. Lee Bailey defending Patty Hearst, who'd been accused of, of, uh, of being with the Symbionese Liberation Army after they kidnapped her. And he was masterful. He did a wonderful job in court uh, in the afternoon, just totally eviscerated a witness. And then uh, I, I happened to go to a lunch restaurant, and there he was in the corner holding court with his, with his pals. They had their, their corner table, and he was, he was putting down martinis. And this was in the middle of the trial, and I'm thinking, wow, I, I don't Yikes. think I'd be able to stagger back to court after a yeah. couple of martinis. But that was the way he rolled. Of course, he lost the case. But he did great the day I saw him. Yeah. No, no, no. It's amazing. And I don't know. It's, uh, it, it is great. And there's, I don't know, there's something about this story that uh, people continue to be mesmerized by. And, you know, there there are times I find the show infuriating, but for the, I mean, I keep watching it because I do think it is really well done, and uh, you know, really just to see Johnny Cochran, uh, you know, Courtney B. Vance as Johnny Cochran is, is worth it. Uh, so I appreciate you uh, talking about that with me. And in our final moments before I let you go, uh, we're now, you know, now into opening week of baseball. So I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you how you feel about uh, the local uh, Southern California teams, both the Dodgers and the Angels. I feel like one of them's going to have a better year than the other, but uh, maybe maybe I'm wrong, and they're both going to ha- kind of have the same kind of average sort of years. What are your thoughts? You know, I think it's going to be exciting. Uh, I mean, when you look at the Mike Trout, it, it's kind of like the stories they told about what Mickey Mantle was like in the 50s. I mean, this guy is just amazing. He's been remarkable in his first few years in Major League Baseball, and I think he's, he's just starting to peak. He's just really getting to, into his own. So I think he's going to spearhead a really exciting year for the Angels. Hopefully, Pool Holtz will be healthy. On the Dodgers side, I, I think they're going to have a great team, but you know, the real story is Vin Scully. This guy yeah. got behind the microphone for the Brooklyn Dodgers in 1950. So this is, let's see, 67 years. Yeah, his 67th season. Years. Yeah, And it's very sad that they can't work out the contract deal with the cable TV. Not that many people are going to be able to hear Scully, but I, I mean, when you listen to him, he's pure gold. He, you know, he's pushing 90. He's been doing it since 1950. He's an amazing story. So, he, I mean, he, he's a big part of the Dodgers story this year. It'll be great to hear him, you know, the, the last few times this year at Chavez Ravine. Yeah, no, it's going to be uh, great. And, you know, because they sort of do a simulcast for the first three innings, that people can hear him on radio at least. Right. And I don't know about where you live, but where I live, my cable company is Charter, which because they're trying to acquire Time Warner, I actually have the Dodgers channel. And even though I make no bones about being a diehard Mets fan. I love to have Dodger games on in the background 
uh, for pretty much just because of Vince Scully. And my wife has always said that she finds it to be a very comforting thing when I've been traveling or away for a little while. She'll put on a Dodger game and Vince Scully will kind of help her lull her to sleep, even though she'll be alone in the house. Although, you know, now we have Felix. But uh, and there's just something about that voice and being able to enjoy it. And the fact that, uh, you know, I've, I've had these last like 13 seasons of baseball where I personally have gotten to enjoy it have been great because, you know, he's great. You're just you're told about it on the East Coast. But when you actually get to hear him all the time, I don't know. It's just it, it's just a pleasure. And it is sad that they're not able to work out a way where uh, people can hear him more. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that the, the there's going to be some some long games for him to call, unfortunately, because, you know, they still have Clayton Kershaw, arguably the best pitcher in baseball, sure. but they don't have uh, Zach Greinke anymore. And it was already really questionable after Greinke as it was, you know, I mean. Uh, the fact that my New York Mets were able to beat both of them on their way to losing the World Series, but going to the World Series all the same, uh, you know, that was kind of, it, once you could beat one of them once, you were in good shape. And the fact that they only have Kershaw now, it'll be interesting to see how the Dodger season plays out because I think the Giants are better and because Granke signed with the Diamondbacks, I feel like Arizona is at least going to be much better. They were a decent team and now they have, you know, a yet another great pitcher. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. But uh, fortunately, yeah. I'll be able to hear Vin Scully describe it all. Yeah, and I'm, I'm lucky too. I've got Charter too. But you're right. I mean, that one two punch of Granke and. Kershaw were just amazing, so it's a shame that that the Dodgers don't have that. But hopefully, they've got enough uh, enough additional firepower. Maybe finally, after all these years, we'll have a chance at a freeway series. The Angels and the Dodgers have never ever met in the World Series, and we've been waiting for it for a few decades now. Yeah, and there've been there've been a few times where they're both in the playoffs at the same time, which you know that that's hard to get. So like every time that they both make the playoffs, it's you know you always get the same articles in the LA Times like freeway series question mark you know and uh i feel like we'll get it at some point you know it's a bit of a it's a bit of a niche thing you know having lived in new york during a subway series which at that time was the lowest rated world series uh some since have not been as high rated but uh you know when you live in a place and both ends of you know i'm sure that those uh the bay area world series were very exciting you know so i'm oh, sure yeah, yeah. This place is just explosive well it's just going to be great to savor of yeah. last year such a testament to him that he may be, I think he's the only guy in the major leagues who is alone in the broadcast booth. Everybody else has the two-person team. Yeah. They got the jock, they got the play-by-play. Sometimes the former athletes are great broadcasters. I mean, you look at people like Joe Garagiola and Bob Uecker and so on, but Scully doesn't need a partner. Uh, he does just fine by himself, uh, and it's just uh, it's going to be real sad uh, when he yeah. signs off for the last time in September. Yeah, absolutely. It, it will be. And, uh, but there's a whole season in which to enjoy it, and uh, I I am looking forward to it, so uh, that'll be great. And, uh, I, look, I think it'll be a, it'll be a fun, exciting season. Uh, you know, last season was uh, really a surprise for me because I didn't expect the Mets to be great. And then literally the the week that my son was born, all of a sudden things start turning around. A trade doesn't happen. Wilmer Flores cries on the field. They get Jonas Cespedes and then they make a run all the way to the World Series. And I actually uh, went to a couple World Series games in New York Royals. So they, they didn't win, but I got to go. And to be at the World Series is very exciting. So, you know, I'm hoping that at some point 
point I get to be at a World Series uh, where my team wins. Were you at the uh, Angels World Series in 2002? I don't know if I've ever I asked was. you that before. I actually was able to be there for oh, great. a couple of the games, including the seventh game. Oh, fantastic. I'm a lifelong baseball fan. And, you know, we were just so into pushing the Angels uh, that year. And really, uh, years before that, I was at the uh, Red Sox-Angels game in 1986 when poor Donnie Moore served up the home run ball to Henderson and Boston broke the Angels' heart. The Angels yeah. were literally within a strike of going to the World Series. They had never gone to the series since they started in 61. But in 2002, it finally came together a little too late for the Cowboy. Gene Autry had passed away a few years before that. But, I mean, to be there for the, the guys to, to win it, uh, against San Francisco was a, just a huge treat. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Royal, I'm uh, really appreciative of the fact that you had some time to uh, carve out of your busy schedule to uh, talk talk Supreme Court, TV, and baseball. Uh, it was great getting great getting a chance to catch up with you. Uh, we'll have to uh, talk again soon. It had certainly been too long, and uh, I appreciate it. And I believe your website, RoyalOaksOakes.com, right? Are you still doing a podcast there? Yeah, I just put up a podcast the other day on uh, why it's better to be a moderate. Uh, uh, what, the way I put it is uh, we're moderates. We're mad as heck, and we're probably not going to take it anymore. Uh, it's sort of a, a piece of advice to uh, turn your back on uh, Donald Trump, so folks can uh, check it out at RoyalOaks.com. Great. Well, uh, we will definitely uh, go there, and uh, we look forward to subsequent installments, and we also look forward to having you back on the Blackcast. Thanks so much, Royal. It's a deal. All right. And that is, of course, uh, KNBC-TV legal analyst Royal Oaks, his website, royaloaks.com. And looking at the clock, we're out of time. So thank you to Deborah Saunders on Twitter at Deborah J. Saunders. And, of course, to Royal Oaks. We will see you next time on The Blackcast. Health insurance.